If you'll stand with me as we begin to read from God's Word this morning. We're going to turn to the book of Daniel in chapter 4 as Pastor Bruce uh, starts a two-week series called You, the Election, and the Glory of God. This morning's message will focus on trusting God on Election Day. We'll be in Daniel chapter 4, reading verses 28 through 37. And if you're using a pew Bible, you can find it on page 504. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the twelve months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and gives it to whomever he chooses. That very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers, and his nails like bird's claws. And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. Let's pray. God, we pray as uh, Lord Election Day nears that we would uh, we would simply put our trust in you, God. That we would uh, we would fulfill our responsibility, Lord. That we would vote with your heart, and uh, God, that you would just guide and direct us. But Lord, ultimately, we know that uh, your hand directs and your hand guides. We just pray that uh, you would be upon our country at this time in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, as Kirk said. With Tuesday's election at the forefront of most people's minds, and I'm sure it's at the forefront of your mind as well, what I want to do is begin a, uh, a two-week mini-series that's simply called You, the Election, and the Glory of God. You know, as American citizens, we're blessed to have, as Abraham Lincoln put it, a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, which gives us both the privilege and the responsibility to vote for our nation's leaders. Now, let me just put your minds at ease in case anybody is thinking it. Uh, I'm not here this morning to tell you who to vote for. That's not my role. That's not my purpose. In fact, that would be a misuse, even an abuse, of my position as pastor. But, at the same time, as Christ followers who have dual citizenship, both here on earth and in heaven, my aim as your pastor is to help you to think about 
the election from a biblical world view. Have you ever wondered what does God think about politics and presidents? And how should we, as Christ followers, respond to the election? How should we respond to our government, especially our leaders? Well, what we're going to see in this series, and specifically this morning in Daniel chapter 4, is that we should trust God on election day. Daniel 4 is a story about a king who basically went crazy. And at the same time, it has a lesson for presidents just as valid today as it was 25 centuries ago. But it's also a story about every one of us here this morning. What happened to King Nebuchadnezzar happens to all of us sooner or later. And for many of us, it may even happen more than once. Therefore, we should pay careful attention to what we read in God's Word here about King Nebuchadnezzar. We should pay heed to this ancient story because one way or the other, we must learn this same lesson. Or we will perish. But if we learn it, as Nebuchadnezzar did, oh, folks, listen to me. We are in for the greatest joys in all the universe. So, what I would like for us to do this morning is to first look at the story of this king who went crazy. And then after that, we will look at its relevance for Mr. Obama and Mr. Romney. So, let me give you the big idea of the story, the lesson of King Nebuchadnezzar. Let me give you the the, the lesson this king who went crazy teaches us, and it's this right here. The pathway of the pride of self to the praise of God must travel through the valley of humiliation. And that's the pathway every person must travel if he or she wants to get to heaven and have eternal life. Ever since Adam's first sin, we all have been born with this disposition Do you remember what the essence of that first sin was in the Garden of Eden? It was the abandonment by Adam and Eve of a childlike dependence upon God in favor of a godlike dependence on themselves. And ever since then, all people everywhere in all generations have been born with this very same sinful nature of Adam and Eve. It's the sinful nature of pride. And that is bad news because what we see in Proverbs chapter 8 verse 13 and other places in God's word is that God hates pride. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 11, God said the haughty looks of a man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. So God hates pride, but the good news is God also loves proud sinners like us here this morning. Are you thankful for that? I hope so. In fact, that's why he sent his son Jesus Christ into the world to save us from both the power and the penalty of our pride. And so Jesus now comes and he says in Matthew chapter 18 verse 4, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so, essence, what Jesus did is he came into the world for the purpose of converting people from a godlike dependence on themselves to a childlike dependence on the Almighty God. And then he died to pay the penalty for our pride. And he showed us the way of humility, how to live a life of humility. So God has provided, in essence, for us a path that leads from pride to the kingdom of heaven and eternal life. But that path must travel through the valley of humiliation. That's what the Bible is all about. It's what the story in Daniel 4 here with King Nebuchadnezzar is all about. And that's what I want us to talk about here for a few minutes. Now, when you look at the life of King Nebuchadnezzar, and specifically of his story in Daniel chapter 4, we're going to look at it in three stages. Three particular stages. And stage one is this. The pride of self. It's the pride of self. Stage one begins when King Nebuchadnezzar is at the height of his power. He's at the height of his glory. Nebuchadnezzar is king of the greatest empire on the face of the earth at that time. And let me tell you, he knows it. So what did the king see when he stood at top of his palace and he gazed over the city of Babylon? Well, he looked with pride at his hanging gardens, which was a beautiful artificial mountain that he had built for his wife inside the city walls of Babylon. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Nebuchadnezzar had three massive palaces in the city. His main palace, get this, was 350 yards long and 200 yards wide. Do you know how many square feet that palace was? We think 10,000 square feet is a super big house, and it is. But his palace, this one, one of three, was 630,000 square feet. At the city, and the city of Babylon itself was an architectural marvel. Records indicate that two million people lived there, making it the largest city in the world at that time. The city was protected by a double-walled system 85 feet high and wide enough at the top of the walls that chariots could race around the perimeter of the city. Truly, King Nebuchadnezzar had every reason to feel secure, to feel safe, and to even feel satisfied. No wonder his heart swelled with pride. This is the stage one in the path, and it's where we all start. It's the pride of self. Look what the king says here in Daniel 4 and verse 30. He says, Is it not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? Now, what do we learn from these words about the nature of pride? Well, from this verse, I think we can see at least two parts to pride. One is found by the word by, when he says by my mighty power, and the other is in the word for, when he says for the honor of my majesty. So when the king here says by, the, by my mighty power, he in essence he means that I love to think of myself as the cause and controller and the source of all my greatness. Just look at it out there. When I see what I have built, 
I love to savor the fact that it's my intelligence, my initiative, and my power were the cause of all this greatness. And it came from me and through me. So pride, as we begin to see here, it, it gets us pleasure from being independent and self-sufficient. Then King, King Nebuchadnezzar adds this other phrase, for the glory of my majesty. In other words, he's saying, I have built this great Babylon by my power and now for my pleasure, for my glory, for my satisfaction. Pride loves to think of itself as the source of great achievement and the recipient of great praise. So from these two phrases here, we can begin to get an understanding and a definition of pride, the essence of pride. Look at this in your notes. Coming up on the screen, in fact, this is the definition that comes from pastor and author John Piper, and I love what he says in how he defines pride here. He says, it is the enjoyment of self-sufficiency rather than God-sufficiency, and self-exaltation rather than God-exaltation. In other words, pride occurs when you start thinking that every good thing in your life is the result of who you are in what you have done. It removes God from the equation. Now, don't make the mistake of, of sitting there and kind of thinking to yourself, saying to yourself right now, well, well pride's certainly not my problem because I don't feel self-sufficient and nobody is praising me for my looks, my abilities, what I've done, what I'm going to do. Nobody's lauding me. Be very careful here because Satan can trick us all. Pride is not just the achievement of self-sufficiency or the achievement of self-exaltation, but rather pride is, did you catch what the definition is? It's the enjoyment of them, the delight in them, the desire for them. And so you may be here this morning, you may see your life as a total failure. You may even feel crushed by defeat and still have pride as the driving force in your life. John Piper describes it this way in the same message that he preached on this very subject. And I quote what he says, his words here. He says, one person may go to a party and brag and boast and draw attention to himself and his accomplishments. Another person may go to the same party and be so fearful and insecure that he or she hides in the corner and tries to avoid people. And both these people may be driven by pride. The strong person doesn't believe the grace of God is needed in his or her life. And the weak person doesn't believe the grace of God is sufficient for his or her life. And since God is not their portion, man is, the longed-for esteem and praise of man, one person fearful that he won't get it, hides. Another person hopeful that he will get it, brags. Same disease, different symptoms, and all of us have it. How true this is. So the first stage of our journey, of all of our journeys here this morning, is pride. And if we don't humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God, then God, in His grace, will lead us to the second stage. Stage two, notice it, is the valley of humiliation. 
the valley of humiliation. It's a dangerous habit to stroll along the roof of your personal kingdom and start thinking about how great you are. Watch out, because Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Back in verse 30, did you notice all the personal pronouns King Nebuchadnezzar used? I and my take center stage in his life. One author, pastor, David Dykes writes in his book, Character Out of Chaos, he says this, and I quote, he gorged himself on his own self-importance. If anyone needed to put his ego on a diet, it was Nebuchadnezzar. And God showed up to serve him an extra helping of humble pie. I like how he says that. While the words were still on the king's lips, Nebuchadnezzar heard a voice from heaven, and it was God's voice. Look what God tells the king in Daniel 4, but this time in verses 31 and 33. God speaking here says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall rule over you, until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and gives it to whomever he chooses. And of course, that very hour, the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers, and his nails like bird's claws. Can you imagine living like this? In fact, coming up on the screen is a, is, a, is a print or a painting by William Blake. It's his depiction of what Nebuchadnezzar might have looked like when this took place in his life. One moment, Nebuchadnezzar is surveying his royal kingdom, and the next, he is raving mad. He's ripping off his clothes and galloping on all fours down the streets of Babylon. One moment he is eating at the king's table, and the next he is eating grass in the fields like a beast. Some people say Nebuchadnezzar was afflicted with what is called clinical lycanthropy. That word may be familiar to you if you're a werewolf movie buff. It's a strange form of... Insanity in which a person is convinced that he or she is an animal and attempts to live like one. More likely, it was boanthropy, which is a psychological disorder in which a person believes him or herself to be an ox or a cow. It's hard to imagine a more severe form of humiliation than this, isn't it? I, I can't even, I can't relate to this. There would be no way to keep the king's insanity hidden from the public for seven years. I mean, after all, sooner or later, word is going to leak out. And though Nebuchadnezzar was still the king, he could not reign, he could not speak, he could not appear in public. He acted like a beast of the field, living and eating with other animals. And over time, his hair became matted and coarse, and the Bible says it looked like eagle's feathers. His fingernails and toenails were never cut, and so they became like bird's claws. It's a long way down from being the king of Babylon to being a beast in the field. So why would God make Nebuchadnezzar act like a beast? What's the point of this? 
What's the purpose behind it? Well, that draws us to our next point here. Look at this. The reason for the valley of humiliation. God has a purpose for it. Notice this coming up on the screen. God leads us to the valley of humiliation so we can feel the bestiality of pride and taste the bitter grass of its field. You see, we can describe pride in this way. Pride is a form of spiritual insanity. It's, in other words, pride is claiming credit for ourselves that belongs to God alone. And when we try to become like God, we become like an animal instead. Pride puts us in a class with the beast of the field. And that's the whole point of Nebuchadnezzar's insanity here. And we all have, listen, this beast within us. All of us do. Nebuchadnezzar here represents a life out of control. He can't even follow the basic rules of personal hygiene and diet. Has that ever happened to you? No, I'm not talking about lycanthropy or boathropy. But do you look in the mirror and sometimes wonder, man, what has happened to me? What's happened to my life? Why is my life out of control? I never dreamed this or planned this for myself. Listen, stage two here, the valley of humiliation, it is the painful discovery of this truth. The truth that we thought we were strong and we discover, no way, I'm weak. It's the painful discovery of of the truth that we thought we were weak and we discover that we're just protecting our egos. We thought we were self-sufficient and we discovered that we are utterly dependent on God for both life and breath and everything in life. So I urge you, if you've never been there, go to the valley of humiliation. Let yourself feel the insanity and the bestiality of pride. When you have tasted the bitter grass of that field, don't just stay there. Travel to stage two. Travel to the final stage of the journey. I should say stage three. And that is the praise of God. The praise of God. You see, the pathway to life leads from the pride of self through the valley of humiliation to the praise of God. Seven years later, the king's life took another dramatic turn. Look what King Nebuchadnezzar writes in verse 34. He says, at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. Now, what is the opposite of pride? We've been talking about pride. We've seen pride in action. We've seen the results of pride in the life of King Nebuchadnezzar here. So what is the opposite of pride? Nebuchadnezzar here in this passage teaches us in these verses that the opposite of pride in our strength, in man's strength, is basically it is praise for God's sovereignty. This is what he sings about when his sanity returns to him in verses 34 and 35. Look what he says now. It's a song of praise to God when he says, for his dominion, speaking of God, is an everlasting dominion. 
and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain God's hand or say to him, what have you done? And then in verses 36 and 37, Nebuchadnezzar, he gives us the end of the story here, the the story of his life transformation and the lesson that we should all take to heart. Notice what he says. At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles restored to me. I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. And now here's the lesson, the heart of it. It's what we should learn as well. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice. And those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. This... This is Nebuchadnezzar talking here. This is what the valley of humiliation is for. Get this, this once prideful king, he now openly declares to his whole kingdom, his whole empire, the praises of God. He has truly gotten the message. And the message is this, God can do anything he wants to do, and no one can stand against the hand of the Lord. Earthly kings rule by God's permission. And they stay on the throne only so long as it pleases God to give them power and authority. Nebuchadnezzar has learned this lesson the hard way, but now he proclaims it for all the world to hear and for us to learn the same lesson even today. Now what's interesting as Nebuchadnezzar comes out of the valley of humiliation and begins to praise the sovereignty of God, two great revolutions take place in his heart and in his mind. Look at this in your notes and coming up on the screen. One is an intellectual revolution. That is how you think about God. And the other is an emotional revolution, how you feel about God. This intellectual revolution, how you think about God, is described back in verse 32. The voice from heaven says that Nebuchadnezzar will eat grass like an ox until, he says, you know. Until Nebuchadnezzar knows. That word know there can also be translated as acknowledged or learned. That the most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. So what does this mean? For us today, well, it means whether you're a king or a president of great power and influence or whether you are just a simple common person, a citizen of our nation or any other nation with little power and little influence, the way out of the valley of humiliation begins with a revolutionary change in the way you think about God. The truth that God rules the kingdom of men must grip your mind. And the sovereignty of his will must become the foundation of all your thinking. 
That's the intellectual revolution that began to take place in the mind of King Nebuchadnezzar. It's the same revolution that needs to take place in our minds as Christ followers. The other revolution that takes place is you come up out of the valley of humiliation as an emotional revolution, how you now feel about God. Nebuchadnezzar, he was persuaded in his head intellectually now that the saying, the saying of by my power and for my glory is the saying of a beast in the field. But the true saying is now by God's power and for God's glory. But Nebuchadnezzar didn't just learn this in his head, folks. Listen, he felt this in his heart. That's the point of verse 34. When he says, I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored Him who lives forever. And then, what does He do? He breaks out in song, praising the sovereignty of God. In other words, what He learned in His mind affected His emotions, and He couldn't help but sing the praises of God Almighty. You wonder why we come here in worship service and we sing? It's because it's who we are. It's part of what we not only learn, but what God is doing in our heart. And we can't help but let it express itself. We're acknowledging the Sovereign One who loved us enough to give us His Son, Jesus Christ, to make a way for us to heaven and for eternal life. What we learn in the head should impact our hearts. This is what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. It's what should happen to us as well. I hope Nebuchadnezzar's story is the story of your journey this morning. Because, folks, it's the only journey that leads to heaven and to eternal life. The king who went crazy teaches us that the pathway of the pride of self to the praise of God must travel through the valley of humiliation. So wherever you are on that road right now, let me encourage you to take another step toward God and away from pride. But it must be a step of humility. Now, you're probably wondering about now, what does all this have to do with politics and presidents? And the answer is, everything. So how in the world does a king who went crazy apply to the election this Tuesday? Well, let me close with an application to the presidential election. And let me phrase this application with one simple truth. And that is here. God will choose the next president of the United States. You say, man, where do you get that, Bruce? How can you say such a thing? Well, go back and look at what it says in Daniel chapter 4, verse 32, the second part of the verse. It says, the most high. Who's the most high? It's God. God Almighty. The most high rules in the kingdom of who? Men. And gives it to whomever he chooses. Now, 
That is not just true for kings in Nebuchadnezzar's day, folks. That is still true for presidents in our day. So I can stand here and say with confidence that God will give the presidency to whomever he sovereignly chooses. Now, there are two things this does not mean. Let's look at it quickly here. Two things this does not mean. First of all, it does not mean that you should not vote this Tuesday. It does not mean that you should not vote this Tuesday. Why? Because God will govern the election by governing the voters. Verse 35 reminds us, go to it, look what it says. Verse 35 reminds us that God does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, which includes the United States of America. Listen to me. As American citizens, we have the privilege to vote. We not only have the privilege, but we have the responsibility to vote. And when we vote, we determine, according to God's sovereign will, who will lead our nation, make our laws, and protect our freedoms. I love what one of the founding fathers of our country said, Samuel Adams. And I quote, he says, Let each citizen remember at the moment he is offering his vote that he is executing one of the most solemn trusts in human society, for which he is accountable to God and his country. But, as Christ followers, if you profess to be a Christ follower this morning, then don't just vote as a, quote, American citizen, but also vote as heaven's citizens. This means let your faith in God, let your faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ impact your vote. A recent Pew study, or a recent study by the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life shows that nearly, this is mind-boggling, two-thirds of Americans say their faith has little to do with their voting decisions. But when you study the life of Jesus Christ in the Gospels, when you study the writings of Paul and the rest of the New Testament authors, and what it has to say to us who claim to be Christ followers here this morning, I would suggest that God expects us to let our faith influence every part of our decision-making here on earth, including the democratic process of voting. You say, well, what does this mean practically? Practically, it means we have a responsibility to be informed on the issues that we're voting on. It means we have a responsibility to know what the candidates stand for. And again, I'm not here to tell you who to vote for. This isn't about whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. None of that. This is about our citizenship, who, as Christ followers, we have dual citizenship, both in heaven and here on earth, but foremost, we are Christ followers. And that practically, this means we need, to be re- we need to be informed. What are the issues? What do the candidates stand for? Especially when it comes to issues like the protection or the sanctity of life, the definition of marriage. Listen, you, you know, God, the Bible does not directly speak to every issue cult- that our culture deals with. Directly. But there are some issues that God is not silent on. 
You go to his word. And God speaks out on it. God speaks on these issues. He's not silent. He has spoken in his word. And we as Christ followers should speak up with our votes. So, what does this mean? Well, it doesn't mean that you should not vote. Number two, it does not mean that God will approve all the policies of the man who wins. It does not mean that God will approve all the policies of the man who wins. Why? Because God's sovereign rule over sinful men is not an endorsement of their deeds or their actions or their policies. So God will choose the next president on Tuesday, and there are two things this does mean. First of all, it means that the presidential winners should not boast, but should be humbled under the mighty hand of God. In other words, the winner on Tuesday's election should not boast like King Nebuchadnezzar and say, by my power and by my wisdom, I have won this presidency. But he should be humbled under the mighty hand of God who rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he will. The second thing it means is that you should take heart this morning. As a Christ follower here this morning, you should take heart and be encouraged by the sovereignty of God in this election. Why? Get this, because whether Mr. Obama wins or whether Mr. Romney wins, get this, God still reigns. God still reigns. So when it comes to Tuesday's election, here's the bottom line. Notice it coming up on the screen. Vote without hope in any one person. Vote without hope in any one person. And vote with hope in our sovereign God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Do you realize all human government will one day end? All human government... Whether it's the communism, socialism, or capitalism, or any other form of government, it doesn't matter. All human government will one day end, but there is a government that will never end. Do you know what it is? It is the government called the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I love the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, when he says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so, folks, here is our hope on Tuesday. No matter who wins the election, no matter who is president, God is sovereign and Jesus is king. That is our one and only hope. So don't vote with hope in any one person. Vote with hope in the sovereign God in His Son, Jesus Christ. Danny Atkin, president of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina, writes, and I quote his words, he says, governmental legislation will not stop the moral plunge of our nation and the world. 
but the gospel of Jesus Christ will. Our hope is not in Republicans or Democrats, Congress or Capitol Hill. Our hope is in Calvary's Hill and a crucified and risen Savior named King Jesus. But here's what I know. You will only take hope in this truth if you're part of God's kingdom with citizenship in his heaven. Listen, the most important decision you can make is not who you will vote for on Tuesday. The most important decision you can make is who you will trust for your salvation and hope. I want to close by showing you a video. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. With the election coming up, it's easy to forget that hope isn't a political process. We can't vote for hope, and we can't vote for anyone to give us hope, regardless of what side of the aisle we're on. There is no hope outside of Jesus. It's important to do our civic duty, but don't get caught in the trap of placing too much hope in candidates and parties. This will only let you down in the end. But Jesus is the solid rock, and on him we should stand. He is our cornerstone, that which we are built upon and on whom we can rely. This is the only source for our hope. This hope will last forever. This hope will endure longer than our problems and longer than this world. All other ground is sinking sand. This is a hope we can share with others to make an impact on this world. With your heads bowed, and as we prepare for our response time, Again, let me remind you that your greatest decision will not be made this Tuesday. The greatest vote you will ever cast will not be for a president, but for the Savior of your soul. So let me ask you here this morning, have you cast your vote for Jesus Christ by repenting and receiving Him personally as your Lord and Savior? Listen, you can do that right now. You can come to the cross of Calvary and receive the hope of eternal life by placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But you must travel through the valley of humiliation by humbling yourself and acknowledging that God is sovereign and Jesus is Lord and that I am in need of Jesus as my Savior to pay for the penalty of my sins. Are you willing to come and do that this morning? To come to the cross? As the praise team sings, let me encourage you to respond how God is leading. And for those that are already Christ followers, let me encourage you to take this time to simply offer up a prayer. To pray for our country, but don't just Pray. Just pray that God's will will be done. That's one way we can pray. And because God is sovereign, his will will be done. But he will work through the citizens of our country. 
and through the citizens of his kingdom. And so pray, and pray that his will would be done through your life and in your life as the praise team sings. Mm -hmm. 